27, beginning with verse 1. And I'm going to be reading just the first two verses and then, and then uh, talking about those verses and then moving on. So it reads, When morning came, all the chief priests and elders of the people plotted against Jesus to put him to death. And when they had bound him, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. The chief priests and the elders plotted against Jesus to put him away. This was the legal gathering of the Sanhedrin because it was already morning time. The previous time that they went and got Jesus at the Garden of Gethsemane and took him away and questioned him by Jewish law was against the law because a man could not be tried at nighttime. So they're rehearsing the same thing they did at night even though it was illegal. Here we see the hypocrisy of the high priests and the elders of the people not even following their own laws, not even following their own scriptures. So they're meeting again the next morning and they're repeating the session over again. They, and then after they had their session, they basically came up with uh, accusations about him that he proclaimed to be the son of God, which we know is truth. And then they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate. And the reason why they had delivered him to Pontius Pilate is because the high priests and, and the elders of the people did not have the authority to put someone to death. Because at that time, Jerusalem was under uh, Roman rule. So the only one who had the authority to do that was Pontius Pilate, who was a governor of that district. Let's go on. I'm going to be reading verses 3 through 10, and then at the end of 10, we're going to uh, kind of review the scriptures again. But beginning with verse 3, it reads, Then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that he had been condemned, was remorseful and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? You see to it. Then he threw down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. But the chief priest took the silver pieces and said, it is not lawful but to put them into the treasury because they are the price of blood. And they consulted together and brought with them the potter's field to bury strangers in. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood even to this day. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the value of him who was priced, whom they, the children of Israel, priced, and gave them to the potter's field as the Lord directed them. Now, we read in the scriptures that Judas was remorseful and brought back 30 pieces of silver. Judas was remorseful, however, he did not repent. So Judas, in a sense, sealed his own fate, which explains why he took his own life. When you do not have forgiveness uh, uh, from the Lord, you have no peace in your heart. He, Judas must have been tormented even to the point of, of taking his own life because he did not repent. 
So remorsefulness is not enough. Feeling sorry about what you do is not enough. There needs to be repentance and a change of heart. And that only comes by asking the Lord for forgiveness. We can ask the people we offend, and we are to ask the people we offend for forgiveness. But ultimately, in order for us to be right with God, our hearts might be, must be right by going to the Lord. And Judas, because he did not do this, uh, wound up committing suicide because he had no peace it's interesting the song that pastor joe sung earlier said he will give us peace uh, yes because he is the prince of peace yet judas had no peace but we find peter on the other hand repenting and being a great man and of great use a great man of god and of great use to god because he had repented and Peter, we find, was a changed man. Gone from, gone from a prideful man to a humble man and lived a totally different life because he repented. Now, Judas says, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. Judas acknowledges his sin, and because of the response he received, in other words, he told him, you see to it, in other words, the high priest and the elders weren't concerned. He threw the money into the temple and said that he threw it into an area, that, I guess where it was the holiest of holy. He threw the money in there. And by this action implicating them, the high priest, of their responsibility of condemning an innocent man, the son of God. So Judas' response of throwing that money down was really showing that they are as responsible as he was. And we find through historical documents that the high priest, two years after Jesus had died, actually also committed suicide. I believe the high priest actually realized who Jesus was, uh, that he was the son of God, and, and realized what he had done, but yet just as Judas did not repent. For I believe if the high priest had repented, he would have not uh, committed suicide. So we find the high priest committing suicide and the Roman emperor, uh, Pontius Pilate, being dethroned or being uh, removed from his position. Um, God, you know, we can see God's hand in all of this. We can see God moving in all of this. So do not be alarmed nor dismayed of what's going on in our country because I serve of God who is in control, and I'm not concerned about what's going on in the country knowing that God is in control, but I am aware that I need to pray. That's what we're called to, to pray because our, our country right now is in turmoil, and prayer is essential. Scripture tells us that Judas went and hanged himself, and his remorseful, unrepentant condition, Judas takes his life, being the son of perdition, which is in John 17, we assured that he went to eternal punishment. Acts chapter 1 tells us that he fell and burst open. Some say he may have fallen after he hung himself, and then he burst open, because there seems to be two accounts, but there might be actually uh, one. There, there are two different accounts about his suicide, but he may have hung himself, and after some time, fallen down, and then that took Place as well. Then was fulfilled uh, what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet. This can be found 
you know, about buying of the field, this can be found in Zechariah. So some are confounded by this because it's in Zechariah, but yet Jeremiah is being quoted. But it's believed that Jeremiah may have spoken it and Zechariah recorded it. And the Jewish people knowing this understood that it was Jeremiah who had spoken those words. So now we'll go ahead and go to verses 11, and we're going to be reading verses 11 through 14, and then again um, reviewing the scriptures. Verses 11 reads, Now Jesus stood before the governor, and that's Pontius Pilate, and the governor asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? So Jesus said to him, It is as you say. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he answered nothing. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he answered him not one word, so the governor marveled greatly. So Pilate was very impressed by Jesus. There was something different about him. Herod asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? When they brought him to Pilate, the Jewish leaders are trying to provoke Pilate into being concerned about Jesus inciting a revolt against the Roman government. So their accusation of he is, they, they tell Pilate that he is claiming to be uh, the son of God, and they're saying this uh, as the only accusation that they can get, but they're saying this trying to, concern Pilate that there's going to be a revolt against the Roman government and this is why they're saying this to Pilate. When Pilate asked if he did not hear what the accusers are saying, Jesus answered him not one word so the governor marveled greatly. The governor marveled at Jesus' silent stance. I imagine without fear, strength and confidence that only comes from God. This with no words would cause someone to marvel. Because Jesus in his eyes had no fear. Jesus in his eyes had a strength that could only come from God. And, and Pilate marveled. Because here is a man that has the ability to put you to death with just one word. And Jesus did not tremble. He had no fear. He was confident. And this caused Pilate to marvel. The British preacher Charles Spurgeon says he had seen in a captured Jews, and this is Pilate, the fierce courage of fanaticism, but there was no fanaticism in Christ. He had seen in many prisoners and meanness which will do or say anything to escape from death, but he saw nothing of that about our Lord. He saw in him unusual gentleness and humility combined with majestic dignity. He beheld submission blended with innocence. And this is what Pilate marveled of. We can walk with strength and confidence just as he did before Pilate. For in Galatians 2.20, Paul says, It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So anytime that we are always facing a situation or a problem, we can also stand with confidence and humility and strength and peace, knowing that God is for us. 
I believe that was sung today too. He is for us. We have no reason to fear. Even if my life were to end today, my, my fate is sealed. I'll be with him. So what is there to fear? Nothing. Nothing at all. So let's go on to verse 15. And I'm going to be reading verses 15 through 18. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to releasing to the multitude one prisoner whom they wished. And at that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. Therefore, when they had gathered together, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that they had handed him over because of envy. It is interesting that Pilate realized envy was the motivation behind the actions of the religious leaders. This was the Messiah. He was drawing a crowd. He was um, doing miracles in the streets. He was healing people. He was setting people free. And really what motivated the religious leaders and the elders of the people was jealousy and envy. And Pilate sees this and calls it out. Pilate offers the release of a prisoner, Barabbas, or Jesus. As was the custom of the time, Pilate was hoping that they would choose Jesus over Barabbas. So see, the reason why uh, Pilate did this is that he thinks oh, this was a, Barabbas was a terrible man. He was a murderer. So you take someone who's a murderer and you take someone who says he's the son of God, whom should you put to death? Barabbas thought, obviously, they're going to choose Barabbas, but they did just the opposite. Why did they do that? Because it was ultimately God's plan. A lot of Christians, especially early Christians, hated Jews because they, they um, seen the Jews as a people who betrayed and put Jesus to death, but ultimately it was not. If, you know, I once, when I was in church in a Catholic church, I recall, recall a priest saying, it is not just the Jews who killed Jesus, it is my sin and it is your sin and it is every sin of every person on this planet who put Jesus on the cross. So we cannot and should not hate the Jews. They were just carrying out what God had destined them to do. So for us to hate as even anti-Christ, to hate the Jews, is, it, it doesn't make any sense. It's against what Jesus teaches. For Jesus teaches love. That was his ultimate teaching was to love one another as I have loved you. So we turn around and start hating a group of people for whatever reason or excuse we come up with. That's not Christ within us. That's flesh. That's just flesh. And... There's still this problem in, in our world where the Jews are still hated. And I pray for them because it's not their fault. It's, it's all our fault that Jesus went to the cross because we're all sinners. For us to just point the finger at the Jews is wrong. Let's go on to verse uh, 19. I'm going to be reading just verses 19 through 20. While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent him... His wife sent him, saying, Have nothing to do with this just man, for I have suffered many things today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the multitudes that they should ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. So now, the reason why the crowd chose Jesus is because the religious leaders persuaded them 
to do so. What's the important lesson here? Just because a religious leader or a pastor or the Pope or whoever says anything, we should not lend a lot of credibility to that. We should first seek it out in scriptures. What he's saying aligning up with scripture. If it doesn't, disregard what the man is saying and pay attention to what the word of God says. Or what they did in following the religious leaders and not following God some did choose God. Some became disciples of Jesus, but the crowd obviously was not listening to God. They were listening instead to the religious leaders. It's interesting. Pilate's wife warns him to not have anything to do with that just man. Pilate's wife says she suffered many things that day because of Jesus. Josephus, the historian, records that Jesus healed Pilate's wife. So Pilate's wife was actually healed at some point or another, not recorded in scripture, but recorded in other historical documents that his wife was healed by him. Perhaps this may explain why Pilate was so hesitant to pass judgment on this man. After all, he had healed his wife. He almost seen it as hypocrisy. The son of God comes and heals my wife. Now I am standing in a place of judgment to put him to death. So he tried to get out of it. Pilate did. He was hesitant to pass judgment. Nevertheless, he was pressed by the religious leaders to have him crucified. We know Pilate declared Jesus to be an innocent man, Luke 23, 4. His wife sends him word concerning the dream she had concerning him. Charles Spurgeon again says, we know that the vision of Jesus in her dream made her suffer. I suffered many things today in my dream because of him. Whatever it was, she had suffered repeated painful emotions in the dream, and she awoke startled and amazed. It is said in the early Christian church, uh, the Coptic church even believes that Pilate and his wife later became Christians. Now, we don't know. It's not recorded in, in Scripture, but the Coptic church even has made them to be saints. Um, is this so? I don't know. I don't see it in scripture. I, I, you know, I would hope that they would become, I'd hope everybody become a Christian. I hope that they would. Um, and she's venerated by the early Christian church because of what she did. Um, let's go on and we're going to read verses 21 through 23. The governor answered and said to them, which of the two do you want me to release to you? They said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, What then shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all said to him, Let him be crucified. Then the governor said, Why? What evil has he done? But they cried out all the more, saying, Let him be crucified. Pilate says, Which of you, which of the two do you want me to release to you? They said, Barabbas. The voice of the crowd, manipulated by religious leaders, is not always the voice of God. And when he said, what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ, they continue saying, crucify him. When Pilate asked them what evil has he done, they said nothing but crucify him because Jesus had done no evil. They could not respond uh, with what Jesus had done to deserve death. So we see that Pilate is perplexed, confused, didn't know what to do. 
He tried to get them to go with Barabbas, but they're choosing Jesus. Now, look in verses, a reading at verses 24 through 25. Then Pilate saw that he could not prevail at all, but rather that a tumult was rising. He took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person you see to it. And all the people answered and said, His blood be on us and our children. Pilate tried to remove responsibility from himself by saying, I wash my hands of the blood of this just person. However, ultimately it was he who could have released him or have him killed. So ultimately it was Pilate's responsibility. Even though he washed his hands, he made the decision. When Pilate says to the people, you see to it, they respond, his blood be on us and our children. They are saying we accept responsibility. And, and as I mentioned earlier, many even today hold the Jews in contempt for killing Jesus. But I believe the priest that, that shared what he shared was right. We all put Jesus on the cross because we all needed forgiveness. And we would not receive it had he, unless he he had gone to the cross as he did. Um, I'm going to read verse 26. Then he released Barabbas to them, and when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Scourging was so harsh that it often led to a person dying. Its goal was to bring the prisoner to a point of death so as to shorten the crucifixion. Now, under Jewish law, a person can only be scourged 39 times because by law, they can only scourge someone 40 times, so they stopped at 39. But under Roman law, there was no such law. They could, they could continue to whip as much as they wanted. And it's really not recorded here how many stripes he received. But they said that the scourging in itself was enough to kill a man. It was so intense. There's so much that happened in the crucifixion that I, 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 um, if you ever get a chance, there's a document that a doctor wrote about what Jesus went through, and he wrote it in 1989. Um, if you ever get to look it up, look it up, because it is tremendous, the amount of suffering and pain that Jesus endured because he loved us. He loved us. Let's go to verses 27 through 31. Now the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole garrison around him, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. When they had twisted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand, and they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Then they spat on him and took the reed and struck him on the head, and when they had mocked him, they took the robe off of him, put his, put his own clothes on him, and led him away to be crucified. I'm going to read to you from Spurgeon what Spurgeon says about this. It is possible for us to mock Jesus today by the way we live. You have mocked him by a feigned worship, and thus you have put the purple robe upon him. The purple robe meant that they made him a nominal king, a king who was not in truth a king, but a mere show. 
Your Sunday religion, which has been forgotten in the week, has been a skeptor of reed, a powerless insight, a mere sham. You have mocked him and insulted him even in your own hymns and prayers, for your religion is a pretense. With no heart in it, you brought him to an adoration that was no adoration and a confession that was no confession and a prayer that was no prayer. It is, is it not so? So Spurgeon really was telling the church in that day, in his time, and England at that time was, a, a, you know, the dark ages was in a dark period. In England had fallen away from God, but through the powerful preaching of Spurgeon revived the church again as they began to see the truth in what he was saying and changed the hearts of people by the word of God. We mock Jesus by how we live. I remember when I was in mass, I was, at, you know, grew up a Catholic, and I would go to church and see these guys in there hanging out in the back of the church and going to confession and taking communion. And on Monday, they're at the park getting drunk and acting like fools. And that, what is that? That's exactly what Spurgeon was talking about. They were mocking Christ. You can't go to church and pretend to be one thing, and then on Monday be something completely different. So that's really what Spurgeon was talking about. And it still happens by those who are not taking seriously the things of God and only go to church for whatever reason. Perhaps it's, it's a social thing, I don't know. But church is not a social thing. Church is, is, is life and death. Church is growth in Christ. Church is a new life. Church is so important, and without it, uh, we become weak. I'm glad, and, and, and I'm glad we're meeting because without each other, we become weak. We need each other. There is power in unity. Jesus said we need each other, and we need to serve one another. Now I'm going to read verses 32 through 34. Now, as they came out, they found a man, Cyrene, of Cyrene. Simon by name, him they compelled to bear his cross. And when they had come to a place called Golgotha, that is to say, place of a skull, they gave him sour wine mingled with gall to drink. But when, when he had tasted it, he would not drink. Simon was from Cyrene. Now Cyrene is a city in North Africa. He was mo most likely Jewish and celebrating the Passover, which is why he was there. The Romans probably chose him because he was a foreigner, didn't really know what was going on, and chose him to bear the cross. It is possible that after Simon carried the cross, he became a Christian because his sons are noted and referenced to in Acts. He had two sons who were mentioned in Scripture who are known also to be followers of Christ. So something happened to Simon as he carried the cross. When Jesus said, if you're going to follow me, bury your cross, Simon literally lived that. So I believe he did become a, a Christian afterwards, and that is noted by the fact that his, his sons were also Christians. Um, they tried to give Jesus wine mixed with gall, a bitter, you know, th this was bitter herbs mixed with myrrh, this acted as a strong drug to numb the pain. Apparently, Jesus wanted to have a clear mind during his suffering. He refused 
the wine with the gall, which would numb his senses, he refused it. He wanted to be totally conscious of, and aware of what was happening. He wanted to endure all he needed to endure for us. Uh, verses 35 through 37 then read, Then they crucified him and divided his garments, casting lots that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Setting down, they kept sitting down, they kept watch over him, and they put up over his head the accusation against him. This is Jesus, King of the Jews. Psalm 22:18 reads, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So this this what we see in Scripture is also prophecy in the psalm being fulfilled. The accusation placed above the cross read, this is Jesus, king of the Jews. The high priest did not like this because often what they would do is the person that was being crucified, they would put whatever penalty they were being crucified for on their body and they would write in there the charge for which they were being killed. And so the reason why Jesus was being killed, because he's king of the Jews. And they didn't like it at all. In fact, they go to Pilate, and uh, Pilate says, basically said, tough. That's, that's why you had him crucified. Tough. Um, let's go to verse 38 through 44. And, this, and what we're going to read here is Jesus on the cross. Believe me, when I did this study, it, it really hurt me to see how much uh, it humbled me to see how much Jesus suffered for all of us. It just, it just really hurt me um, that he had to die for me. You know. Verse 38 reads, You see, he loved us so much. We can't even imagine the love that someone has to die for us. And I think that's what I was hurt by that he had to die for me because I am a sinner. We're all sinners. Yet he died in my place, in our place. Let's go on. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and another on the left. And those who passed by blasphemed him wagging their heads and saying, you destroyed the temple and build it in three days. Save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests also, mocking with the scribes and the elders, said, he saved others, himself he cannot save. 
If he was the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross, and we will believe him. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now if he will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. Even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him with the same thing. Now there were two robbers crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. Jesus was mocked by all around him, mocking at mocking him with the only intention to shame him, to make him feel bad, only to make themselves feel better. Yet Jesus tells us not to add insult to insult. He does not say a word. Even after all the mocking, Jesus doesn't think ill of them. He still loves in spite of. He asks God to forgive them. Um, again, showing us how much he truly loves us, the lost, the sinners. We find in the Gospel of Luke that one of the robbers repented while the other one did not. Luke 23, 42 through 43. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. So see, there were two robbers, one on each side. One accused him and mocked him, and the other repented. And the one that repented was with him in paradise that same day, for Jesus said. So again, we come to repentance. Repentance is so vital. Let's go on to verse 45, and we're going to read verses 45 through 50. The crucifixion and his death. Now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was a darkness over all the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lams sabanachi, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood there when they heard that said, this man is calling for Elijah. Immediately one of them ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink. The rest said, let, let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. From the sixth hour to the ninth hour would be 12 noon to about 3 p.m. So for three hours there was darkness. There was darkness in the land for three hours. The time that Jesus was on the cross was approximately six hours from about 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. From about noon to 3 a.m., darkness filled the land. So the darkness lasted about three hours. This was not a lunar eclipse. As a lunar eclipse would not occur on Passover, Passovers are only done on a full moon. So it was not a lunar eclipse. Historians record that at this time there was a solar eclipse and an earthquake as if creation itself was crying out. But I believe this was probably the wrath and anger of God for what, what had to be done to, to his son. And the darkness that fell on the land 
was darkness that fell on Jesus because at that time while he was on the cross, he was receiving upon himself all the sins of the world. And so during that time, it all goes dark. And, and Jesus responds to this because Jesus sees this darkness as, as God, his Father, leaving him. And it's the only time that the Father is, is, is not with him as the way he sees it. Jesus cries out with a loud voice, and about the same time darkness falls, asking God why he had forsaken him. For this brief period, God is not with Jesus. God, at this moment, sees the sin of humanity placed upon him and turns away. Yet we know that some, at some point, the Father does come to Christ, as Paul records in 2 Corinthians 5.19, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself on the cross. So at some point, God comes back to Jesus and is in Jesus, and is, the world is being reconciled through Jesus back to him. Spurgeon says, I have even ventured to say that if, I had, if it had been possible for God's love towards his son to be increased, he would have delighted in him more when he was standing as a suffering representative of his chosen people than ever he had delighted in him before. So even Jesus, even though Jesus seen it as God leaving him, God must have been tremendously pleased with his son for following through and, and being obedient even unto death. God was very satisfied with his son. Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Jesus yielded up his spirit. He chose when he would die. He was conscious and coherent. We also see John, in John 19.30, he says, it is finished, which means paid in full. When Jesus gave up the spirit, in other words, he chose when to die. And when he said, it is finished, he's basically saying, paid in full. So all our sins are paid in full. All forgiveness is paid in full. We just need to accept it. Let's go on to verses 51 through 53. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earthquake and the rocks were split. And the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the Holy Spirit into the holy city and appeared to many. And verse 51, we see the veil being torn uh, and the temple represents access for anyone who repents to God. See, Jesus is our divine mediator. From that point on, no longer would man ever need a mediator. A man, man would never need another man to be a mediator for the Son of God now becomes our mediator. There's no need for me to be prayed for by a priest or go to confession. There's no need uh, for me to go to any man for any forgiveness because it is through Jesus. Now there's nothing wrong in being prayed for, but my mediator is Jesus, not man. In verse 51, we see the veil being torn, representing access to anyone who repents to God. It's interesting that there was an earthquakes and rock split seems creation again responding to his death. The veil is torn, no one but Jesus is our mediator. And verse 52, 
It is a jump to his resurrection, so this may be a little confusing, but in verse 52, um, it's a jump to his re resurrection and is the only place in scripture we see the saints raised. We are told they went into Jerusalem and appeared to many. Matthew does not tell us what they did, but it's fascinating to think about. What exactly did these saints who came up and were resurrected with Jesus do? One can only wonder, probably uh, giving testimony and witness to Christ. Verses 50, uh, 54 through 56. So when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly, saying, Truly, this was the Son of God. And many women who followed Jesus from Galilee ministering to him were there looking on from afar. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. And verse 54 through 56, we see the centurion and those with him witness what had happened. They had, be they had come to a sensible conclusion, truly this was the Son of God. Witnessing what they had witnessed and seeing darkness come upon the land in the earthquake, the centurions and the guards came to the conclusion that Jesus, in fact, was the Son of God. Understanding and believing this is the first step to salvation for only the Son of God can save. From a distance, Mary, Jesus' mother, and Mary Magdalene, and Zeb Zebedee's mothers were watching. Uh, verses 57 through 61, now when the evening had come, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself also had become a disciple of Jesus. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate commanded the body to be given to them. When Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in clean linen cloth and laid it in his new tomb, which he had hewn out of rock, and he rolled a large stone against the door of the tomb and departed. And Mary Magdalene was there, and the other Mary sitting opposite the tomb. Joseph of Arimathea, disciple of Christ, requested the body of Christ from Pilate so as not to allow the body to rot or be attacked by animals, especially during the Sabbath. Joseph served the Lord by attending to his burial and providing a tomb for him. Now, verse 62 through 66, and as we're coming to a closure, now it's the end of the chapter. And this is where we hear the good news. And verse 62 reads, On the next day which followed the day of preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees gathered together to Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember while he was still alive how that deceiver said, After three days I will rise. Therefore, command that the tomb be made secure until the third day. Lisa's his disciples come by night and steal him away, and said to the people, He has risen from the dead, so the last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard. Go your way and make it as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting a guard. On the next day, the chief priests and the Pharisees go to Pilate saying, they are concerned about Jesus rising. Isn't that interesting? The high priest and the religious le uh, leaders 
are concerned about Jesus rising from the dead because he said he would rise from the dead, they're almost proclaiming what is going to happen. Their request actually helps to validate Jesus' resurrection as legitimate. They're ensuring that his disciples cannot steal the body of Christ. So what they actually did was legitimize his death and his resurrection, his death, burial, and resurrection by posting a guard there. Pilate said to them, you have a guard. Now, a Roman guard consisted of four soldiers who rotated every four hours. And the penalty of falling asleep or the person or the person that you're guarding escaping was death. These were disciplined soldiers. For those of us who are in the military, you know you don't break orders like that. The penalty for them falling asleep was death. You just don't. And because they rotated every four hours, and the plan was by by Pilate to rotate them every four hours so that there is no excuse to fall asleep. You're not going to have somebody there for 12 hours with the possibility of them going to sleep. So Pilate ensured they had a rotating guard every four hours. Four of them there, four Roman soldiers. No way the disciples can get in there and steal the body. So what did the high priest actually do? They legitimized his resurrection because they cannot come up with the excuse that his disciples stole his body. Um, it's interesting, if we jump, and, and, and I have to go to verse 28. I'm not going to read, I'm just going to commentate from verse, chapter 28, because I can't end there. We have to hear the good news. I can't end with his burial. Uh, I have to go to his resurrection. So it's interesting, in chapter 28, we know that according to chapter 28, there was an earthquake and an angel descends from heaven and rolls back the stone, an angel. The guards fell as dead. This angel's countenance, according to scripture, was like lightning. Can you imagine? His countenance, you know, his being was like lightning. And I don't know if you've ever, ever been, I'm sure most of you have been around lightning. It is almost blinding. So the countenance of this angel was so brilliant that it was almost blinding. And it says that his clothes was white. And he sat on the stone. Interesting. He rolls it over and he sits there. I, I find that. I, find, I, I like that. I find the angel sitting there in front of these tough Roman soldiers. Now, how do the soldiers respond? They said the guard fell as dead. The angel's countenance uh, overwhelmed them. And they fell as dead. They were scared. And what did the guards do? They run to the high priest and saying, what are we going to do? Um, this is what happened. So the high priest actually had, had to acknowledge that Jesus was the Son of God because of what the Soldiers went and told him. Soldiers didn't go to Pilate. Why? They didn't go to Pilate because had they gone to Pilate, Pilate would have lost it, had probably killed on the spot. So they go to the high priest hoping for a way out. The high priest tell him, lie, tell him the disciples stole him, and I'll make sure you don't get killed, and gave him a bunch of money. But we know Roman soldiers just are not going to do that. For those of us that have been in the military, we don't break orders. We just don't. Um, 
So this proves Jesus' resurrection as legitimate, and the posting of the guards proves it legitimate. It's interesting that many people believe that Jesus, uh, uh, you know, many people believe that Christians believe in a myth. That's just nonsense, and that's just crazy, okay? Um, some of the ancient stories that we hear about these gods, so, uh, Thor and so forth, those are myths because they're not supposed they're just stories. They're not supported by history or documentation or archaeology. But Jesus is not a myth. Jesus is validated by Scripture, and Scripture is validated by archaeology, by historical documents, and so forth. So he's not a myth. It's not a story, a fable that's made up by clever human beings. This is not so. Jesus prophesied it in 70 AD the temple would be destroyed, and Roman historical documents have proven that that occurred. The destruction is not in scripture because it happened well after the gospels were written. But Roman historical documents do record the destruction of the temple, which only also proves that Jesus was not a myth. Jesus was a real person that really existed. He's not a myth. He's not Thor. He's not a Greek god. Uh, of somebody's fantasy in their mind. He is the real thing. He is the Son of God. And he come back to life. And how do I know that for sure within my heart that Jesus is real? Because he changed my heart. And no one but the Son of God could do that. He changed my heart. He made me a different person, a new person. And that is the good news. Jesus rose that we might have life and life more abundantly. And we all have life eternal. And you can share that. that I don't, I've been prompted even through my studies to share. And I don't know if somebody's been coming at you with Jesus is a myth. Share the reality and the truth that Jesus is no myth. And he is validated both by archaeology and historical documents within the Roman government. But I've been impressed all week long. You need to share that this Sunday. So if anybody comes to you with Jesus is a myth, he is not a myth. He is the Son of God. He is real. So with that, we'll go ahead and close. And uh, I will ask if there's anyone that doesn't know Jesus, uh, we'll make time for you to accept him in your heart. So if there's anyone that needs to accept Jesus, we'll just let you know what, what needs to happen for you to be saved and pray with you so that you receive salvation. There be anyone here? If not, we'll go ahead and close in prayer and uh, we'll conclude this message. Father, we thank you for this day and I pray that uh, everyone would have a blessed rest of the week and that uh, they go forth with the truth and the revelation that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and proclaim it in the world, for that is what we've been called to do, that the world might know Jesus and might come to salvation as well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Amen.